Um, hey everyone, it's good to see you. Wow, this is strange. Y'all all being beneath me. <laughs> um, but yeah, welcome to RUF. Like we say every week at RUF, we believe you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And so that means wherever you find yourself tonight, uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, I've been uh, just kind of paying attention to life on campus for the past week or so, and it seems like it's a pretty tense time. Uh, seems like people are pretty high strung right now. So thanks for taking the time to come to RUF. I know there's a lot of things that you could be doing with your time. And uh, yeah, thanks for being here. It's good to see you. So every semester in RUF, we go through a series. Uh, this semester, we've been going through one called A Better Story that's based on the Apostles' Creed. Um, and we've kind of, our theme has been that the Apostles' Creed, which is kind of a spark notes of the Christian faith, it tells a better story. And it's a story that accounts for our glory, it accounts for our shame, it gives us the ability to live with resilience in the present, and it gives us a sure hope for the future. And so if you've been with us this semester, we've considered what it means to believe in God the Father Almighty, uh, and we've started working our way down to what it means to believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And so for the past two weeks, we've kind of considered the person of Jesus. Who is Jesus? And now we're moving into the work of Jesus. What, what did Jesus do? And so we're going to be on that for the next two weeks. And uh, theologians kind of have this distinction uh, of kind of like breaking up the work of Christ into two parts. So there's the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. So this week we're focusing on what uh, is called the humiliation of Christ. And next week we'll be focusing on his exaltation. So we're going to be trying to tackle what it means that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried, and he descended to the dead. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we can get started. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for this time that we can get together and can consider uh, the story that you have told in your word and consider what that might mean for our lives. Um, I do pray for each of my friends here tonight um, that you would not uh, leave us wanting um, tonight, that we would um, get a picture of who Jesus is, um, that we would come away with a deeper understanding of his beauty. And Lord, I just pray that you would draw us deeper into worship and to the true happiness that only Jesus can offer. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so after my junior year of college, I worked an internship at this really, really large church that was near uh, where I went to college. And uh, it, I mean, it was, a, it was a mega church, it was huge. I was a youth intern for a youth group that was like 500 people. Um, and so it was kind of overwhelming for me because that was not at all my understanding of what the church was. And not only that, it was, a, uh, it was like a completely different denomination that I had never been associated with. And it was a denomination I didn't particularly care for, full disclosure. Um, but it was a good opportunity for me to get some ministry experience. So I took this, uh, I took this job, and uh, one of my jobs at this thing was to uh, lead a middle school Bible study, which, again, wasn't really my scene, but I was just trying to get experience at this point. And they put me together with this volunteer uh, who kind of exemplified everything that I was cynical about, about that church. Um, like, he wore, like, alarmingly deep V-necks, um, he was the kind of dude who, like, wore his hat sideways, like, unironically. Like, that's just what he did. Um, and so this dude, like, it was hard for me to be, like, hard for me not to be cynical about him. Um, but he was my co-leader of this Bible study. And so we're, I'm leading this Bible study. We're asking a question, something 
uh, around, we were in the book of First John, we were talking about like what the meaning of the cross was. And I asked this question, these middle school students are just kind of talking. And then he kind of like leans over and looks at me and he just has like utter sincerity in his eyes, this kind of wide-eyed wonder. And he says, bro, Jesus died for us. Wow. And then he did this again. He went, wow. And like stepped back a little bit like that. And I was like, what is going on? <laughs> like it, it, it sincerely weirded me out, right? Like I, I had no idea what to do with it. Like it, it really weirded me out. And I, I don't tell that story to be like, yeah, that guy was weird. Okay, let's talk about something else. That's not what I'm here to talk about. I, it did weird me out a little bit. And maybe it was weird for that guy to say that. But the more that I reflect on that, the more that I reflect on that, the more that I can't help but notice the state of my heart. I can't help but notice that when someone said something about being amazed at, at how good, like how amazing the news is that Jesus came and died, my first response was cynicism. My first response was like, yeah, duh, we all know that. You see, for this guy, the cross was awe-inspiring. Thinking about the fact that Jesus had died for him was, was awe-inspiring. It, it moved him to worship in the moment. And for me, it had become something that was casual. It had become, it kind of occupied the same space that like the law of gravity might occupy in our minds. It's something that is there. We take it for granted. But I don't know that we would like wax poetic about how amazing the law of gravity is. It's just a thing. That was the space that the cross had occupied in my heart. And I think that this is a tendency that if you've been a Christian for, for any period of time, I think that you'll recognize it's true that there's a tendency in our hearts that we grow cold towards the most important truths in the world. That even though we can have this experience of, you know, maybe becoming a Christian in a radical way, over time, things kind of uh, fizzle out. Uh, Like sometimes, you know, if you're a Christian, you know this, there are times when it's all like oceans and gyra on repeat. And then there are times where you're just like, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. And that's, those, those are both things that legitimately Christian people feel. Why is that? Jesus can seem casual or maybe even strange to us sometimes. So what I want to do tonight is I want to take a look at Jesus' suffering. I want to take a look at the cross. If you are to ask kind of any Christian person on campus, what is the gospel? They would probably say, Jesus died for my sins. So I want to take a look at that, and I want to just consider what that actually means. And so we're going to do that through Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Uh, this is a passage in the Old Testament that is looking forward to who Jesus would be. It became one of the most central passages in the, that is reflected on in the New Testament. It's how the church kind of made sense of who Jesus was. And so as we look at this uh, passage tonight, we're just going to see two things. We're going to see the reason for Jesus' suffering and the reward of Jesus' suffering. So the reason for Jesus' suffering and the reward of Jesus' suffering. So uh, let's jump in. The reason for Jesus' suffering. Um, So right before Louise was born, uh, I received an anonymous Amazon package. Has anyone ever received one of those? Like you have no idea who it's from. It's a real weird experience. Um, But this is right before Louise was born. I open up this package because who doesn't like getting an Amazon package? I tear it open. And I pull it out, and it is a size 3XL black t-shirt that says this. Yes, I have a beautiful daughter. I also have a shotgun and an alibi. (laughs) And, like, no idea who sent it. So if you're in this room and you sent it, please 
approach me, I'll send you a thank you note and also would want to ask why you sent that to me. Um, so I was so confused when I received this. I mean, because it kind of made sense because people knew that I was having a daughter. But at the same time, why was it 3XL? Like, I, I don't wear a 3XL. I don't know if you do that about me. Like, that's not a normal shirt size for me. Also, like, guns make me super nervous, so I don't know why anyone would send me a shirt like that. Um, see, it kind of made sense to me that someone would send me that, but it didn't really fit, literally, and also figuratively, it did not fit me. And I think sometimes that's how we think about Jesus suffering on the cross. That's how we think about this most central aspect of the Christian faith. It kind of makes sense, but does it really fit with what we need? Does it actually uh, kind of fit our most deepest, our, our existential longings? Why in the world do we need to have a suffering man on a cross as the most center point of our life? Why a suffering savior? I think this passage gives us several reasons. Um, and there are so many that I could say, but you kind of just got to pick and choose at this point. Otherwise, we'll be here for three hours, and I know no one wants that. Uh, not even me. So uh, let's just uh, consider a couple of these things. The first reason we see in this passage is our blindness. Our blindness. So if you would look with me to uh, 53.2. I don't know if you can get that up on the screen. Um, yeah, okay. 53.2. Uh, this is the prophet Isaiah. who is, He's speaking about who Jesus would be. And the first thing that he says about Jesus, he says, He grew up before him, he grew up before the Lord, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And then continuing on in verse 3, it says of Jesus that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Uh, what does all that mean? This means that Jesus, uh, the very one who created the earth, uh, the one who is, we learned last week, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, the one who is the Christ, the one who is the only Son of God, the one who is our Lord, he came into the world and he was met with two responses. On the one hand, he was kind of met with like a meh response. Like when people look at Jesus and there wasn't anything that would make them desire him. But then on the other hand, he was kind of met with this like hard pass. So God himself comes into the world to right all the wrongs. And he's met with, on the one hand, like, eh, I don't know. And on the other hand, no, thank you. And why is that? It's because Jesus doesn't meet what we tend to look for in a leader. Jesus came in weakness and we tend to want strength. Jesus came in obscurity and we tend to want celebrity. He didn't match what we were looking for. You see, Jesus came because humanity is blind, because our vision is broken. We see the darkness and we think it's light, and we see the light and we think it's darkness. We can't see true beauty. And I wonder, is this something that you feel deep down? I mean, I feel this. I think it's why we constantly choose like the wrong types of leaders. Like, we go for leaders who are flashy, we go for leaders who are good-looking, we go for leaders who are competent, and what do we see? Moral failures, right and left. We see people abusing power. See, we choose the wrong type of leaders because we're blind. Or to make it even more personally, we, we, we might go towards the wrong type of boyfriend or girlfriend because we just don't know what to look for. We don't know what we're looking for, and, and oftentimes the choices that we make, they often make us miserable. 
So Jesus came because of our blindness. Second, Jesus came because of our guilt. Jesus came because of our guilt. Uh, Look with me to verse 4. It says of Jesus that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And then in verse 5, it says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And then it says again in verse 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. What's being said here? It's being said that humanity has a guilt problem. All these words here, we, we have transgressions, we have iniquities, we have this description of us like sheep having gone astray. This is kind of the story that the Bible tells from the beginning. Mankind's created in God's image to perfectly reflect who God is. And we choose instead to be God. We choose to go our own way. We choose to do whatever we want. And this leaves us with this objective experience of guilt. And I'm not saying that it's just, it's something that we feel. That's why I say it's an objective experience of guilt. It is an objective experience that we feel subjectively. We feel it subjectively. Uh, It's why we can't stop working. It's why we can't stop uh, numbing out, whether that's with drinking or with video games or whatever your poison of choice is. It's because, like the Bible says here, we like sheep have gone astray. We go our own way because deep down we know that we're not what we're supposed to be. And so we just try to find things that are going to fill us up. But it doesn't work. So Jesus came because of our blindness and he came because of our guilt. And it's really tempting to just end it there and say, like, really the only reasons that Jesus came are, are negative. Uh, you're a sinner. End of the sermon. Let's pray. Um, but I want to point out there's actually positive reasons that Jesus came. Reasons for Jesus' suffering. The main one is this. It's Jesus' love for us. That's why he came. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the one through whom all things were made. He is the creator. Everything is about him. And can you imagine what it would be like for the one who created the earth to look out and see things like murder? To see things like assault? To see things like pollution? Can you imagine what it's like for the God of the universe to look out and see that sort of thing happening in his good creation? What would it be like for Jesus to look out and to see us so miserable? What do you think that would drive him to do? Um, I've told this story before, but it's a good one, so I'm going to repeat it. Um, You may have heard of Dorothy Sayers, anyone? Dorothy Sayers? She's a mystery novelist. Um, She was a 20th century mystery novelist uh, who wrote these stories about this guy named Lord Peter Whimsey. Uh, She was also kind of a genius. She was one of the first women to ever go to Oxford. And so she wrote a ton of these stories, and they were very popular. But the main character uh, was kind of um, controversial at the time. So a lot of people in the press did not like Lord Peter Whimsey, who was kind of her protagonist in the story. And she became renowned for defending this uh, character that she had come up with. She would say all sorts of things about him. She would always stand up for his character. It was, there were even rumors like she had some sort of romantic affection for this character that she had made. And then at one point, uh, there was a new story that came out, and there was this new character in the story. It was a woman named Harriet Vane. And here's what we know about Harriet Vane. Harriet Vane was a prolific author of mystery novels. She was also one of the first women to ever graduate from Oxford. What happened? 
You see, she looked into the story. She saw this creature that she had created, and she loved him so much that she wrote herself into the story because she had to be with him. She had to be with him. And I want to tell you, Jesus did the same thing. That's the same reason that Jesus came, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried, descended to the dead. Jesus looked down at us in our misery, and he said, I have to do something about this. I have to do something about this. When Jesus saw his beloved creation, he couldn't help himself. Love made Jesus do a crazy thing. So Jesus came. Those are the reasons that we see for Jesus' suffering, our blindness, our guilt, and his love for us. What about the reward of Jesus' suffering? The reward of Jesus' suffering. So I think as we look at this passage of Scripture, I think, again, there's a billion things that we could see. So I just want to point out two aspects of the reward for Jesus' suffering. One is negative, and one is positive. Uh, So negatively, one of the rewards of Jesus' suffering is that Jesus bears our guilt. Jesus takes our guilt away from us. That's what I mean by negative. We see this in verse 5. It says, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And then moving forward in verse 6, it says, The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. What's that saying? It's saying that Jesus dealt with our guilt by taking it all upon himself. Jesus dealt with this experience of being glorious ruins, of being not what we were supposed to be, of our sin and shame, by taking it all upon himself and by becoming our substitute. Uh, this, This passage kind of points this out in, I think, a pretty uh, cool and profound way. I remember we had said earlier in verse 6, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. In our blindness, in our guilt, in our shame, we've gone astray. But then it says in verse 7 that Jesus became like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus is the better sheep. Jesus is the sheep that stood in the fray. He's the sheep that came and was substituted for us. And this was not an accident. We see in verse 10, towards the end, it says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. What does that mean? It means that in love, God the Father put forward the Son to be a substitute for our guilt, for our sin, and for our shame. And in love, God the Son responded and said, I will gladly do that. Jesus is our substitute, and he bears our guilt. And this is good news. The chasm between God and humanity has been erased. Jesus has taken away our guilt, so that there's nothing that stands between God and us. And I think when we talk about the gospel, even the way that we summarize it so often is Jesus died for our sins, it's kind of we stop here, as if that were the end of the story. So think about it this way. Um, Imagine uh, you have $400,000 in student loans, uh, so you now have $390,000, thanks to Joe Biden. Um, So the bank calls you, and uh, you're automatically nervous because you have $400,000 in debt, and you have no idea how you're going to pay it back. Uh, The bank calls you, and then they bring you in. Uh, They don't let you get too far in. In the lobby, a teller meets you, and they said, listen, we understand that you have a lot of debt, uh, and there's no way that you can pay it back. But don't worry about it. We're going to forgive your debt um, if you just leave right now. And so what do you do? Of course, you leave right now, and you walk out of the door. So when you walk out that door, what is true of you? 
What's true of you is that you are no longer in debt. You have a blank slate with that bank. But what's also true of you is that that bank does not want to see your sorry face again. And I think when we stop with the gospel being Jesus died for your sins, we're saying the same thing about God. That God gives us a blank slate. That God gives us a cosmic do-over. And that's only half of the good news. There's so much more. So that's what it means negatively that Jesus bears our guilt, but positively, we bear Jesus's righteousness. We bear his righteousness. Look with me to verse 5. It says, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So when we trust in Jesus, when we receive and rest in him, we receive what? We receive peace. We receive healing. And when you hear peace, don't just think like absence of conflict. Peace in the biblical world, it means the presence of flourishing. It means right relationship with God. It means right relationship with neighbor. That's what peace means. It's not merely an absence of conflict. What this is saying here is that in Jesus, God is not merely neutral towards us. He doesn't just give us a do-over. God looks at us and he sees his beloved children. He sees his royal children. So how in the world does this work? How does this work that when God looks at us, he sees his children, and yet, yet we've, we've already talked about the fact that we're blind. We've already talked about the fact that we're mired in guilt. How does this work? We see this back in our passage. Verse 11 it says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So I want to draw your attention specifically to the end. It says that by his knowledge, the righteous one, that is Jesus, will make many to be accounted righteous. He's going to make us to be accounted righteous. He's going to make it to where when God looks at us, he sees one who is righteous. How's he going to do it? We see this in the end. He shall bear their iniquities. This is what theologians call imputation. It is God uh, taking our sin and putting it on Jesus. Jesus takes our sin and puts it to death. And then we are given his righteousness and we are enabled to live in perfect peace with God. So what difference does that make? Um, Let's think back to this kind of bank illustration that we already set up here. So you have just gone out the door, you are debt free, but you have a blank slate and you know the bank doesn't want anything to do with you. Now imagine as you're walking out the door, uh, a man in a crisp, nice three-piece suit comes out and says, sir, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't know who you were. Um, I didn't tell the people at the desk. I'm so sorry. Would you come back in with me? So he takes you in. You go past the teller's desk. Uh, you go right by the safe, and then you go into his office. You see, you know, mahogany everywhere. There's this beautiful brown leather chair, and he has you sit down in the brown leather chair, and then he proceeds to sign the bank and all of its assets over to you. And he tells you that he's called an artist who's going to come and do a portrait of you that they're going to put up on the wall because you're the new owner of the bank. That is what it means to bear Jesus' righteousness. That's the difference. See, it's not that God gives you a a blank slate and a do-over. It is that by faith in Jesus, you are truly and actually clothed in in Jesus' perfect beauty. That's in, in the most meaningful sense, that is who you are. You are the righteousness of Jesus. There's nothing that you can do that will take away from it or add to it. 
You see, your present security, your future security, everything, it depends completely on the person and work of Jesus. That's it. That's it. So at this point in the sermon, as I'm kind of trying to wrap it up, it's tempting to tell you, okay, I've given you the gospel, now here's what you should go do with it, right? Uh, You know, Jesus is a suffering servant, you should go be a suffering servant. Or Jesus served people, so you should go serve people. And I think that's true. I definitely think that's true. But what I want to tell you is I don't think that's what this passage is telling us. What it's telling us is that we can't ever serve anyone truly. We can't ever be a suffering servant. We can't ever be like Jesus until we sit with the fact that Jesus suffered for us. Until we sit with the fact that Jesus went to the cross for us and that he did it gladly. You see, Jesus did not come to give us uh, good advice or a good job. He came to give us good news. He came to tell us it is finished. Before Jesus' suffering is an example for us, it is good news to receive and to rest in. And this is true for you regardless of where you're at. Uh, Jesus' continual word to you, if you're a follower of Jesus or not, his continual word to you is come to me and rest. If you want to just imagine what would Jesus say to me right now, it's that. He would say, come to me and rest. He would say, come to me, take off your guilty rags and put on my perfect righteousness. It's finished. I've done it all. Rest in it. And the more that you receive this, the more that you rest in this accomplished work of Jesus, it it changes the way that you live your life. It means that you can have a secure sense of self but you can also be open to criticism. It means that you can be really sad when you fail a test, but you don't have to be crushed by it. It means that you can honor your parents and listen to them, but you don't have to be destroyed when they disapprove of something that you do. It means that you can pursue difficult things, but you can be okay when you fail. It means that you can have great success academically or career-wise, and you can also not be a jerk. And it means that you can listen to that difficult roommate and not freak out when they don't also ask you questions about yourself. That's what the cross does in our lives. That's the transformation that can come from receiving and resting in Jesus alone. And maybe you're here today, and my my assumption is that you're here today, and on some level, in a varying degree, that the cross has become casual to you. Because that's what happens. It becomes casual to me, constantly. And what I want to tell you is that what Jesus is calling you to do, if you look into your heart and you see that it it just doesn't seem to do it for me right now, his call for you is to receive and rest in him, is to come to him and let him clothe you. Jesus invites us to receive him and to rest in him. Amen. Let's pray. Pray.